So have you ever been somewhere before and once you're there, you start to realize, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. Uh, I don't think I really belong in this place. We had an experience like this right before Catherine and I were married. The summer before we were married, she went home to live with her mom and dad up near Asheville, North Carolina for the summer. And myself and about four of my friends rented a cabin up there and just got jobs for the summer. And so we were out one day way out in the mountains, hiking, swimming in the rivers, doing all that kind of stuff that's fun to do in the summertime. And we decided that when we were heading back toward home, uh, that we wanted to stop and get something to eat. And so Catherine suggested that we could stop and eat at this country club that her father was a member of. So we decided that that sounded like a good idea. And so we were going there to the Biltmore Forest Country Club next to the Biltmore Estate, okay? Now, remember, we had just been out hiking in the woods and swimming in rivers, okay? So just keep that in mind. So we, we knew, she knew that we had to have on long pants, so we couldn't show up pants, so we couldn't show up in shorts to go into the country club. Uh, and so we had on, we luckily had some jeans and stuff, and so we put them on. We go walking in, we go sit down at the table, we're seated there for a little while, and we began to wonder to ourselves, it seems like it's taken them a while to come to the table and ask us, you know, what we want to drink. Uh, And I think that this was on purpose, uh, as you'll see in just a minute. Uh, And so we're sitting there for a little while and sitting there for a little while, and eventually this this man comes over to the table and he goes, I'm going to have to ask y'all to leave. And we said, well, why is that? I mean, her dad is a member here at this this country club. We We can come in here and eat. He goes, you're not allowed to eat in here with blue jeans on. You have to have on pants, like khaki pants, or you have to be more dressed up than we were, okay? And so we were, we were ushered out of the, of the country club and uh, ate at McDonald's or somewhere else later that day uh, on the way home. And so, you know, that's one of the places we get kicked out of, you know. But uh, So anyway, we weren't allowed to be there, and it was because we weren't properly dressed that day to eat in the country club. And the Old Testament system of the law that we have, have been discussing as we've been working through the book of Hebrews is this big picture that declares to us you're not really supposed to be here, right? The laws with all the regulations and uh, about sacrifices and washings and holiness, it's showing us that we're not really supposed to be in the presence of God because of our sin. Like we're not, we don't belong there because of our sin. But what if when this gentleman came up to us there in the Biltmore Forest Country Club and said, I'm going to have to ask you all to leave. What if, I know he's dead, but what if all of a sudden Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Commodore himself, walked in and said, I'm going to say it's okay that they stay here. And he gives us, you know, one of his jackets, some nice pants to put on. And he says, "It's, it's okay that they're here. I think that they're welcome here. Then we'd be okay, right? Well, in the same way, although we don't belong in the presence of God because of our sin, Jesus came to earth and died for our sin, paying the price for our sin, and he clothes us in his righteousness, and he says to us, you're welcome here. And so it's not about what we bring, it's about who brings us. And that makes this a better covenant which is the title of our sermon today. As we're continuing through the book of Hebrews, we're going to come today to chapter 8, verse 7. 
And the whole series is entitled A Better Hope. And today we're going to see how Jesus offers us a better covenant. So if you have your Bibles open, I'd ask that you'd stand in honor of God's word, if you're able, to Hebrews chapter 8 in verse 7. This is what the word of God says. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each brother or sister saying, Know the Lord because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. And by saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. Thank you. You may be seated. So today, we're going to really take a big chunk out of Hebrews. We're going to do a chapter and a half of Hebrews today, uh, that second half of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9, uh, as we're continuing to work through this sustained argument uh, that the author of Hebrews makes as to why Jesus is better. You recall that the occasion for this letter is that there's a group of Christians that are of a Jewish background that are all of a sudden going, you know, maybe we ought to think about returning back to Judaism. Uh, maybe we ought to go back to the things that we used to do. And he is showing them repeatedly throughout the book of Hebrews why that's a bad idea and why Jesus is so superior. And today he focuses on the old covenant versus the new covenant that we have in Christ. And so if we were to take this passage today and apply it into our hearts in 2022, here's the action step that I would give you today as you're getting ready to leave this place. The action step for today is that we, you and I would come before God with a clear conscience. Come before God with a clear conscience. Remember what I said a few minutes ago, all of the Old Testament laws and sacrifices and regulations are showing us that we ought not to be coming before God, that we, that we don't belong there. But what we're going to see in this new covenant, in this better covenant, is that you and I are able to come before God with a clear conscience because of Christ. And so let's begin by looking at the old covenant. Turn over to chapter 9. We're going to spend a lot of time in chapter 9 today as we work through this sermon. In verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, The first covenant had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. And so he, he says, this is what we're going to talk about in chapter 9. We're going to talk about these regulations of worship. We're going to talk about the earthly sanctuary. And he begins with the description of the sanctuary beginning in verse 2. He says, A tabernacle was set up. And in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand and the table and the presentation lobes. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. You and I often refer to that as the holy of holies, the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna 
Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. And it's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. And so the first thing that he does is he gives us a description of the holy place. And he says there inside that, that first room of the tabernacle, you're going to find a couple of different items. And one of those, he says, is a lampstand. A second is a table with the sacred bread on it. And so he, he begins by talking about this lampstand. And the lampstand is what you and I would, would know as the menorah, the, 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 the lamp that's used in a lot of Jewish ceremonies, like Hanukkah. And that lamp was to be continually filled with oil, constantly burning. Because, as you know, as you step inside the tabernacle, which was the tent, or if you were to step inside the, the temple, uh, once the temple was built in Jerusalem, there weren't windows. And so the only light that was there inside of that first room was this lamp. And so it had to be continually burning. It had to be constantly filled with oil because it brought light into the tent and it showed us the way to go to meet with God. Now, he also mentions that there is a table there that has the sacred bread. That, that phrase literally means the bread of the presence, the, the bread of the face of, of God. And so there were 12 loaves there that were baked and set in two stacks of six loaves of bread. And these represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were to be set before the face of the Lord every Sabbath day. And so on every Sabbath, the priest would come in and they would replace these bread with new cakes. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 8, this is what the Word of God says. The bread is to be set out before the Lord every Sabbath day as a permanent covenant obligation on the part of the Israelites. And so this, this bread served as a reminder of the covenant between God and Israel. And as we know throughout the scriptures, bread is a, is a picture of fellowship. It was over bread that you had fellowship with a brother or sister. And so that bread was a picture of the fellowship between God and his people, that they covenanted together, that they had fellowship one with one another. Now, as he continues here in these opening verses of chapter 9, he offers a description of the Holy of Holies. This is inside that second curtain, inside that second veil. And so if you were to see here a picture of the tabernacle, this, this is a, a picture of what it would look like. And so you would enter from the right into uh, what is the outer courtyard where you had an altar where the burnt offerings were made. Then as you enter further, you see the circle there, and that is the washing basin where they would wash themselves ceremonially before they could ever enter into the actual part of, of, the, of the temple. And so that first room is the holy place. And on your right is the table with the showbread, the presentation loaves that were there. On your left is the menorah or the lampstand. And so this is, this is how it was set up. 
And as you continue further going from right to left toward the Holy of Holies, you see there's a square there that is the table where the altar of incense was located. This is right outside of the second curtain, the veil that would, that would prevent you from entering into the Holy of Holies. And then as you entered into the Holy of Holies, there was located the Ark of the Covenant with all the items inside of the Ark that it mentions here in the book of Hebrews. And so this is a kind of a picture, a visual for you of what he's describing here in chapter 9. And so he lists that you would find this golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Now the golden altar of incense, as you saw, was just outside of the veil, and the priest would burn incense on it continually. And Exodus chapter 30 and verse 35, it tells them what, how to do this. It says, prepare expertly blended incense from these. It's to be seasoned with salt, pure, and holy. Grind some of it into a fine powder. Put some in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It must be especially holy to you. As for the incense you're making, you must not make any for yourselves using its formula. It's to be regarded by you as holy, belonging to the Lord. And so this was a specific type of incense that wasn't used anywhere else. You didn't take it home. They weren't selling it at Bath and Body Works or anything like that. This was the only place where they used this incense. And it was there continually burning because it was holy unto the Lord. And when you read through the scriptures, incense is often associated with prayer in scripture. And so this is a picture of the prayers of the people coming up before God, before they would come into his presence. And so the high priest would take a censer uh, that was filled with this incense into the Holy of Holies when he entered in on the one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, showing the prayers of God's people for mercy as he was going in to offer the, the, the sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice there on the Ark of the Covenant. And so this was uh, ushered in with the prayers of the people as he came before the Lord. Inside of this ark, we find several items that are listed here in Hebrews chapter 9. It says that there was a golden jar of manna. And this was a sampling of the manna that God provided for them, uh, that wilderness generation, every single day as they were wandering around in the desert. And this manna and this jar was a reminder to them of how God provides for his people. And so they, they kept it there inside of the ark. It says also inside of the ark was Aaron's bud, Aaron's rod that budded. And this was because all the other tribes began grumbling and saying, why is Moses' brother going to be the, the one that's the priest? Why can't it be our tribe that's the priest? Why can't it be the he, him that's the priest? And so God uh, had them to put all of their rods there, and he says, the one that, that buds is the one that I choose. And in number 17, we see that, that Aaron was chosen above the other tribes to serve as priest. And it's a reminder to them inside of this ark of God's anointing of his priests. Inside the ark, it also tells us that there were ten, the Ten Commandments, which, of course, were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And this was the covenant that God made with his people. It was the statutes. It was the law that they would follow and obey. And then, of course, there was the ark itself. This was the place the Bible says where the, the presence of God dwelt, his Shekinah glory. 
And so there was these angels there on either end of the lid uh, that were seated at each end and they were facing inward. And it shows how they stood as witnesses over the lid, which was the mercy seat is what it was called. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, the Lord says to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark, or else he'll die because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. And so God tells him that this is, this is where his presence was, was dwelling in front of the people. And the angels were there in worship of God. In fact, they were in awe of his mercy that he showed the people there at the mercy seat. So as you continue down through chapter 9, the author then moves to a description of the regulations of worship, picking up there in verse 6. It says, with these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. But this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. There are physical regulations and that only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. And so he says in the outer room, there were these continuous worship that was being carried out by the priest. In the inner room, in that Holy of Holies, only the high priest came in. He only did that once a year on Yom Kippur, where he would take the blood of sacrifice. He would offer it for himself. He would offer it for the sins of the people, seeking God's mercy for their sins there at the mercy seat. And he describes for us the difference in access that was found under the Old Covenant. Not anyone could just stroll up into the presence of God. He says that, you know, the priest would go into the first room, but not just regular people. But then he says even beyond that, into the most holy place, into the holy of holies, only the high priest could do that. And that, that tent was symbolic of it. The veil literally blocked the way. You couldn't go in there. And, and he goes on to say there in verse 9 that these sacrifices don't make the worshiper perfect either. It says that, that they could never perfect the worshiper's conscience. And so what the old covenant was doing was showing us our sin it was showing us God's righteousness, and it was making it clear that we didn't belong in God's holy presence. It doesn't, it doesn't give us a clear conscience, but it was pointing us to a new covenant where all things would be made new and where our consciences would be cleared, where our hearts would be cleansed. Which brings us to the second part of this passage today, which is the new covenant. He goes into detail there describing the Old Covenant, describing the tabernacle, describing all the articles of, that were involved in worship inside the tabernacle. And then he says, this is made greater or fuller or realized in Christ. He says, this is the New Covenant. Remember, he's talking to these Jewish Christians these, that came from a Jewish background. He says, listen, you know the Old Covenant really well. That's why he didn't go into a lot of detail about all these things, because they knew it. You and I are, are removed from it. We don't know all the details very well, but they did. But now he goes to explain how all of these things find their fulfillment in 
Christ. And if you go back into chapter 8, into verse 5, that's where you find your interpretive key to understand how, what the argument is that the author of Hebrews is making. Back in chapter 8, verse 5, He's talking about all the elements of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he says in verse 5, These serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So think about that. When you see this description of the tabernacle or of the temple, he says all of those things are a copy. They're a shadow of the heavenly things, of the real things. He says, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Remember when you're reading, you start your reading through the Bible in a year, and you go through Genesis, and then you get into Exodus, and you're like, why is all this so specific? You know, as he's like, make the temple or make the tabernacle, it needs to be this long, it needs to be this big, it needs to look like this, it needs to have these elements, it needs to be this tall, it needs to be overlaid with gold. Why is he so specific about all those things? Because they're a copy that's pointing you to the real thing. It's pointing you to the real thing. And so here, as you get down to verse 11 of chapter 9, he begins to describe for us the real thing. In verse 11, he says, Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. And the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And so Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in majesty in heaven. That's the greater tabernacle. In verse 12, he says that he entered the most holy place once for all time. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And so he says, this is a better sacrifice than the priests had to offer. And he goes into the real holy of holies. It's the very presence of God. One time for all time. In verse 13 and 14, he says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? Did you catch the difference there? He he says that the blood of goats and calves We're able to offer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, but the blood of Christ, he says, will cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Christ is not just washing our hands. He's washing our hearts. And this is a different thing. In that first tabernacle, we remember that there was the lampstand. And that lamp, that light, constantly burned and it showed them the way to go to meet with God but this is great made greater in the new covenant when Jesus says I am the light of the world John 1 9 he says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world and he is the one who shines the true light that shows us the way to God in that first tabernacle There was the table of showbread, and it was a sign of the fellowship with God, and it represented the 12 tribes of Israel. But this is made greater in the new covenant 
when Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And so it's through Christ that we have fellowship with God the Father. In fact, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, See, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Have fellowship. In that first tabernacle, there's the altar of incense, and it was this sweet aroma that wafted up to God's nostrils, symbolizing the prayers of the people. But this is made greater in the new covenant because we have Jesus as our high priest who carries our prayers to the very throne room of God so that we can come boldly before the throne of grace because he's our intercessor. And in Revelation chapter 5 verse 8, the Bible says he took the scroll and the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense which are the prayers of the saints. There's our prayers right there in the very throne room of God. In that first tabernacle, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside of it, it says there was a jar of manna. And it was a reminder of how God provided for his people during their rebellion. But this is made greater in the new covenant because Jesus says that he offered his own body as true food that sustains us and that redeems us. If you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, this is what he says in verse 53. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. He's talking about how, how we have our faith in the body and the blood of Christ. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Listen to what he says. Here's the connection. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Inside that ark was Aaron's rod that budded, a reminder of God's anointing on the priests to serve as representatives for the people. But this is made greater in the new covenant because we learned last week that Jesus is an anointed priest of God in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Inside that ark were the Ten Commandments, which were God's law. It was God's standard of righteousness, his his standard of holiness, but this is made greater in the new covenant as well because Jesus came to fulfill the law and the requirements of the law. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill them. And then there was the ark itself where God would look upon the mercy seat where they had sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice first for himself and then for the sins of the people. And they would cry out to God to show mercy and forgiveness to his people. But this is made greater in the new covenant 
Because the Greek word that's used there in verse 5 that's translated as mercy seat is the word hilasterion. And it it's, means the mercy seat or the place of atoning. It's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 3 verse 25 where the Bible says God presented him, presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice, as an elasterion, as a mercy seat. He presented Jesus as a mercy seat in his blood that's received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. So Jesus is the mercy seat. Then there was the veil that separated the holy of holies from the outer room. In verse 8, it says that the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. But that's made greater in the new covenant because that's when the way into the holy of holies is revealed. When Jesus was crucified on the cross in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50 and 51, the Bible says Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit and suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. When? When Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross. The earthquake, the rocks were split. Now there is no dividing wall between God and man because Christ is our mediator. In verse 14 it says, how much more, <laughs> how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. We said the action step for today is to come before God with a clear conscience. You go, well, how can I do that? You've, you've been very clear that I don't belong there, right? Back in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, he says, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. That's the problem. We cannot perfect our conscience. But in this new covenant, it's a better covenant because it is written on our hearts. Go back to chapter 8 that we read here at the beginning of our passage this morning. Chapter 8, verse 10. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. One commentator writes, more important than burning the proper incense at the proper time with the proper fire, with the proper elements, was having a proper heart before God. Christ is not just washing our hands, he's washing our hearts. And this passage from chapter 8 is a quotation from an Old Testament passage from Jeremiah chapter 31 and verses 31 through 34. And what that shows us is that even in the Old Testament, there was anticipation of God establishing a new covenant with his people, even in the Old Testament. And so in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13, he says, by saying a new covenant, he's declared that the first is obsolete. And what's obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews has been making throughout this entire letter. 
that this old covenant has become obsolete and is about to pass away. All of the components of the old covenant were shadows and copies of the greater covenant that was to come. The priests were filling an office that was made greater and perfect through the priesthood of Christ. The sacrifices were a picture of the perfect sacrifice that would be offered in Christ on the cross. The tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly tabernacle where Christ ministers. And even the old covenant itself was pointing to the new one that would replace it. In Galatians chapter 3 verses 6 through 9, this is what we're reminded. That just like Abraham who believed God, And it was credited to him for righteousness. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. The scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. He says, what was it that God blessed in Abraham? It was his faith. It was his trust in the promise. It was not through works or maintaining the law. Abraham was able to come before God because of his faith in God's promise. And so this Old Testament system of the law was a giant picture that declares to man, you're not supposed to be here. And all those laws and those regulations and those sacrifices and washings and and holiness all shows us that we don't belong in the presence of God because of our sin. So when you go into chapter 9 down to verse 18, it says that's why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Did you hear that? He was sprinkling everything with the blood of the sacrifice, even the people, it said. And that blood of the sacrifice were a constant visual reminder of the price of our sin, that our sin cost a life. You had to watch that lamb be slaughtered and knew that it was because of what you had done. Because of what I had done. The blood of the sacrifice were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice. The blood of Christ. When you go down to verse 23 of chapter 9 it says, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ didn't enter a sanctuary that was made with hands. Only a model of the true one. But into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He didn't do this to offer himself many times, like the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Wow. I mean, this is so incredible how God pieces all of this together all through the Old Testament, and it was pointing us to this week 
when Jesus would go and offer himself on the cross to atone for the sin of mankind. And this new covenant says that through faith in Jesus, you're forgiven of your sins and you're washed clean. In verse 27 of chapter 9, it says, Just as it's appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See, through faith in Christ, the Bible tells us that we are reconciled to God, that we become sons and heirs in the kingdom of God, that we belong and that we can come with a clear conscience because Jesus is coming again to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him by faith. I want you to hear again this new covenant. Go back to chapter 8 in verse 10 and listen again to what he says about this covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's almost verbatim of what he says in Revelation. That I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen, each brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Why? Because we'll be in the presence of God in heaven. And he goes on and he says, I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. Ever again. And so although we don't belong in the presence of God because of our sin, Jesus came to earth and he died for our sin. And he clothes us in his righteousness and he says, you are welcome here. Not because of what we bring, but because he brings us. Our Savior is Jesus the Christ. So that means we can come before God with a clear conscience. And so the action step for today is to do exactly that, to come before God with a clear conscience. And so Christians, what this word tells us is that we have been forgiven forever of our sin. And so we can walk in the freedom of Christ we can serve him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We can come into the presence of God because of Christ. And some of you may need to do that today. As I read that passage from Revelation where it said that these bowls of incense that were in the presence of God, in the throne room of God, are the prayers of who? The saint. They're your prayers. And so today, you can come, you can kneel at the altar, you can pray there at your seat, you can pray anywhere you are, and know that your prayers are going into the very throne room of God. You can come before him with a clear conscience because of what Jesus has done for you. And so maybe you want to spend some time in prayer at this altar or there at your seat this morning. But there may be others today who have never trusted in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. And you may say, just like I did at the Biltmore Country Club, I'm not sure I feel like I belong here. And the truth of the matter is, the Bible says you don't. I don't either. None of us belong in the presence of God because of our sin. That's why this is such good news. That Jesus came to earth and died in our place and paid the price for our sin so that we can come before God. 
cleansed of all unrighteousness, forgiven of all of our sin. It's removed as far as the east is from the west and is remembered no more. And we can come before God as sons and daughters and heirs in his kingdom. And that can be true in your heart today. If you will repent or turn from your sin and call on Jesus as your Savior to forgive you of your sins and to give your heart to follow after him as your Lord and King. In a minute, we're going to stand, we're going to sing. There's going to be leaders here across the front. And they're there to talk with you, to pray with you, to counsel you about anything on your heart. But if this is the decision that you need to make today, I want you to come and to share with one of them to say, I want to, I want to trust in Jesus today to forgive me of my sins. I want to become a Christian today. But however the Lord is speaking to you, now's the time that we'd be doers of this word and not just hearers only. Let's stand with every head bowed and every eye closed. God, we thank you today for your word. Lord, for the beauty of your word, the symmetry even of your word, how we see the Old Testament being revealed in the New Testament in Christ. Lord, how your plan was unfolded before the people. And God, the, the hope that we have because of Jesus who says we belong here, that we can come before you with a clear conscience, that we're truly forgiven forever of our sin. And so, Lord, I pray for Christians here today that may be struggling with shame or guilt, that may be feeling unworthy. God, that today they would hear these words, that you belong, that you can come before God with a clear conscience, not because of anything that you've done, but because of Christ. God, I pray for those who are here that have never trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God, that today would be the day that they would make this decision in their hearts to receive this gift of eternal life, this gift of salvation, that they would know God and have relationship with him in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.